Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm sure on Sunday mornings now, your Bibles just open up to 1 Corinthians. We've been there for so long and still have a ways to go. But God has been speaking to us through this book. And this really is a, a very helpful book to go through as a young church. Because this was a young church. And even though this book is set in a context 2,000 years ago, this book applies to us in very real and vivid ways. Uh, so we come to a passage this morning that likewise applies to us in very real and vivid ways. So I want to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 25. These are the words of God. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man so to be. Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. But, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. But this I say, brethren, that the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none, and they that weep as though they wept not, they that rejoice as though they rejoiced not, and they that buy as though they possessed not. And they that use this world as not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passeth away. One of the challenges for an expository preacher is taking the principles of the Bible, which were given to specific audiences in specific settings, and rightly applying them in their proper context. It's very easy to ignore the context of Scripture and make the Bible say many things that it does not actually mean. We know this because of the abundance of professional athletes that think, first, or that think Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me, has to do with your ability to shoot a basketball. Well, the context of that verse was Paul enduring persecution for the sake of the gospel. Context is very important. How especially that true, how true that is of a chapter such as 1 Corinthians 7 as it is chocked full of imperative and trans, translational difficulties. You will not be able to make sense of this chapter and rightly apply it to your life unless you know who Paul is addressing throughout this chapter's various sections and the circumstances surrounding his counsel and admonition. The importance of rightly interpreting this chapter is only heightened when we consider the grand importance of its content. Chapter 7 concerns practical issues relating to marriage. Because this is a topic that affects everyone in our church in one way or another, you are either married or preparing for marriage, or you have been married, or you know people that are married, marriage is all around you. This is not a chapter that we want to get wrong. We must take careful consideration into what God is saying to us in this chapter. These are just some of the thoughts that go through my mind as I prepare to preach each Lord's Day. I'm giving you a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look into what goes into the pulpit on Sundays. I share these thoughts with you for two key reasons. Number one, I want you to know that at this church we take the Bible very seriously. Nothing matters more than what God has said. There are great rewards for understanding and obeying what is written. There are also great consequences for failing to rightly divide the word of truth. Now, I, I know that because I am fallible, because I am imperfect, I, I, I know that I, I am not 100% accurate with every interpretation and every application, and I know that God is gracious in that regard, but... We should never presume upon the grace of God and think that, well, it doesn't really matter if we know what it means. God will forgive us if we make a mistake. Well, He will forgive us, but we should never presume upon His grace like that. We, we must be faithful stewards and we must uh, painstakingly labor to figure out what God is saying to us in His Word. But secondly, I, I share this with you because preachers must make hard decisions as they prepare the text that is before them. 
Studying for a passage will oftentimes lead to multiple plausible meanings. And while every passage may have many applications, it only has one correct interpretation. And as I'm studying for uh, this series in 1 Corinthians, nowhere other than chapter 7 have I come to as many places where as I'm studying for a, a passage and trying to figure out the meaning of a particular verse and I'm reading commentaries and looking at the original languages, I come to several plausible interpretations. And the job of a preacher is to determine what that correct interpretation is based upon context, based upon other doctrine and other portions of Scripture, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. And I want you to know that I don't come to these interpretive decisions lightly. In other words, I don't give a cursory reading to the text and then just come and tell you what I presume it to mean. I, I, I labor to, to deliver to you what God has truly said. There are times when every preacher fails to do this, because the human mind is infallible. Nevertheless, to communicate the Word of God with accuracy and with power and with authority, that is always the goal any time a true preacher enters into the pulpit. I don't want to just present you with a bunch of plausible suggestions. I want to tell you what God has said to us. Well, knowing this, knowing the seriousness of this matter on your end and mine should cause you to heed God's word with greater attentiveness, to meditate and to ponder what thus saith the Lord to you. And that's what this book is. That's what the Bible is. This is God speaking to you, even in the difficult parts. Even in the parts where we read them and we think, I don't know what that means. Still God's speaking to you. There's nothing more important as a child of God than knowing what your Father in heaven has said to you. So as we come now to this last section of chapter 7, which begins at verse 25, we know that in each section of this chapter, Paul spoke to specific groups of people within the church all relating to the subject of marriage. But there's a really important group of people that he has not directly addressed yet. And that group, of course, is singles. Singles. Paul has addressed husbands and wives. Paul has addressed widows and widowers, which are, they're single in a sense. He's addressed Christian marriages to believers married to each other. He's addressed mixed marriages, a believer married to an unbeliever. What about people that are not married and never have been yet? We have several in that category here in our church. And if that's you, I don't want you to feel left out because Paul has a lot to say to you. <laughs> Beginning at verse 25, continuing, continuing all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 40, Paul is primarily talking to singles. When we take a step back, and we look at the big picture of this chapter, we can identify a running theme that Paul applies in every section. That running theme is this, wherever you are in life, your focus should be consecrating yourself to God in the midst of where he has you and serving him there. That's the theme of this chapter. So if you're married to another Christian, sanctify your marriage and serve the Lord together. And if you're married to an unbeliever, Sanctify that mixed marriage and serve the Lord in the midst of your unbelieving spouse. If your spouse has passed away, sanctify your widowhood and serve the Lord there. And Paul does not exchange principles at verse 25. The theme of today's sermon, the theme of this section is, if you are single and not yet married, sanctify your singleness and serve the Lord. The purpose of marriage is for a husband and wife to serve God together in ways that they could never do alone. But the purpose of singleness is to serve God in ways that you won't be able to do once you have a spouse and a family to care for. There are advantages to singleness. And that is what Paul will highlight for us here in this text. Now I know that we live in a culture that tells you at a radically young age that if you, you don't have a, a, a relationship, your life is somehow incomplete or insufficient. And, and most of that is absolute foolishness. A 12-year-old boy should not be concerned with having a girlfriend. He should be concerned with running around in the woods and playing army. 
throwing a baseball. A 12-year-old girl should not be concerned about what she looks like to boys. But there is a sense in which you do come into a, a stage of maturity in which you do begin to think about the opposite sex, and that is a good thing. Like the one brother that came and told his pastor, he said, Pastor, I've got, got a problem. I need your advice. I need your counsel. My, my sons came home, and I was talking with them, and, and they're starting to like girls. And the pastor said, Brother, that's not a problem. The problem is when they don't like girls. So all of this starving pressure to have a relationship is worldly wisdom, but it's not the truth of God. I want to say to you at the outset, do not despise your singleness. Do not despise your singleness. For most of you, your singleness won't last forever. The Lord will grant you a husband. The Lord will grant you a wife. And you won't be single anymore. For most of you, your period of singleness will be very short compared to your time spent married. So short that you will not even really remember it (laughs) with with great vividness. So you must not waste your singleness or squander your singleness. You must use your singleness for the glory of God and the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. God does not give you a period of singleness so that you can stay up late and binge-watch TV shows and spend hours of day in front of a video game, hanging out with the guys, hanging out with the girls. That's not why He gave you a period of singleness. God doesn't give you a period of singleness so that you can go out on the town or so you can foster a social media addiction. God gives you a, single, a period of singleness to prepare you for the rest of life, to allow you to serve Him with unprecedented liberty and freedom that you will never have again after you're single. And this is Paul's driving emphasis in this section. Now, some have preached these verses, 25 through 40. Some have preached them as reasons why you should remain single. Or reasons why singleness is superior to marriage, as if if it were. I'm not going to repeat previous sermons, but we understand that Paul is not arguing for the superiority of marriage or the superiority of singleness. There's blessings and there's there's challenges to both. So I, I don't believe it's right to preach it that way. Rather, this section presents considerations for those in a period of singleness. If you are single, we will look at things that you must be considering, things you must be thinking about, considerations about your service to the Lord. Paul is not arguing that you must remain single, nor is he trying to guilt trip you if you are planning on getting married. Paul is simply counseling that if you're single, there's advantages and blessings to your singleness that you ought to consider. Maximize your service to the Lord in the current state that you're living in. And if you're single and thinking about marriage, there are things you must consider about the reality and responsibility of taking a spouse. From verses 25 through verse 40, there are six such considerations. There are six considerations. But due to the length of this passage, time would not permit us to preach through the entire thing this morning. So we're going to look at the first three considerations this Sunday and next Sunday, Lord willing, the concluding three considerations. But it's important for you to understand that verses 25 through 40 are all one consistent thought. They're all one section. So the title, by way of a title, I would give you Considerations in Singleness, Part 1. And then next week will be... Part 2. And I also want to say at the outset, in my study and preparation, um, I, want, I, I might be mistaken, but every outline I've ever given you, alliterated, uh, whatever the case may be, is original. Uh, it's, it's how I saw the text break down, but I'm going to depart from that this morning because in my studies for this section, I came across an outline to this text that I thought hit the nail on the head, and I, I didn't see any way to improve upon it. So, This outline is not my own, but uh, I do believe that it's a faithful breaking down of this text this morning. So, considerations in singleness. Things you should consider if you are single. The first thing that I want you to consider is the present distress. The present distress found in verses 25 through verse 27. 
Paul is moving on to the Corinthians' next inquiry. You know that this chapter is structured according to Paul's correspondence with the church. They had reached out to him. They had perhaps asked questions or perhaps made statements about specific issues. And Paul wrote back to them addressing those issues. So whenever you see now concerning, Paul is saying, I am now moving on to the next topic that you wrote to me about. The previous section, verses 17 through 24, was somewhat of a digression from Paul's teaching on mixed marriages. Uh, the, the, the theme there in verses 17 through 24 was what? Remain as you are. Serve God where you are. But really, that was a digression from the topic of marriage. If you're married, serve him there. If you're unmarried, serve him there. If you're single, serve him there. So what we find from that is that every good preacher, the Apostle Paul included, goes down a rabbit trail every once in a while which is what he did in 17 through 24. So when he says, now concerning, he's getting back on track. He's, he's going to now address the next thing that the Corinthians wrote to them about, and we, he identifies his audience when he says, now concerning virgins. Virgins. What is a virgin? Well, biblically defined, a virgin is a single Christian that has never been married. We know this because earlier in verse 8, Paul spoke to the unmarried. The word here in verse 25 is a different Greek word that is translated virgin. Unmarried really is more the idea of demarried, to the demarried. Uh, but this is really talking about someone who has never, ever entered into a marital relationship. Sadly, we no longer live in a society where the term virgin can be used as a synonym for the term single. In our day, very few people maintain their virginity throughout their singleness and keep themselves for marriage. And that problem is not just something that the world has, it's something that the church has. Yet I want you to notice, as plainly as can be, how Paul makes no distinction between virgins and singles. The assumption of the text is, according to biblical ethics, if you are single, then you are a virgin. Well, you say to me, well, I'm single, but I'm not a virgin. I've lost my virginity. Does this text still apply to me? Absolutely it does. Because though you can never be a virgin again, you can be virtuous. You can be virtuous. Remember what we've learned thus far in chapter 7. God is calling you to serve Him right where you are, not where you should have been. God is not calling you to live the Christian life with regret, nor is He calling you to allow the guilt of previous sins to hinder you from current service. So will you regain your virginity once you have lost it? No, you will not. And I'm, I must say that to you. And so if you, if you have maintained that, keep maintaining it. Keep yourself for the one that the Lord would have you to marry. But if not, do not feel that that sin somehow hinders you from serving the Lord now. Because there is repentance, there is grace, and there is forgiveness, and there is restoration in Jesus Christ. Receive that forgiveness, receive that cleansing, and consecrate yourself as a virtuous servant of God for the remainder of your singleness. So Paul says, now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment. When Paul says this, he's doing what he did in verses 10 and 12. He's saying, Jesus did not address single virgins during his earthly ministry. And he didn't. You can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You won't find where Jesus addressed marriage towards single virgins. But Paul says this, but, but as as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. So Paul is saying, I'm not repeating something that Jesus says, but I am called to be a faithful apostle, and I'm writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Therefore, even though Jesus never personally addressed this issue when he walked, on, when he walked the earth, what I am about to say to you is just as much the Word of God as everything that Jesus said. Equal in authority and truthfulness. I, I've met Christians who, who um, actually are against red-letter Bibles. And their reasoning is that it gives a wrong impression. 
as if the words of Jesus are somehow more the Word of God than, say, the words of Paul. But I want you to understand that though different portions of Scripture might carry different weights in certain situations, all of it is equally inspired. All of it is equally infallible. Okay, the latter half of uh, Exodus 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 chapters on all the, the furniture that was to go in the tabernacle, just as much God breathed as for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. It's in the Bible. The word judgment here, when Paul says, I'm not repeating Jesus, paraphrasing, I'm not repeating Jesus, I'm not giving you a command that Jesus gave, I'm giving you my judgment. The word judgment here carries the idea of conviction or counsel. That is another really key aspect of Bible interpretation, is you have to, you have to figure out, okay, what, what kind of grammatical structure are we looking at? Are we looking at an imperative command? Are we looking at historical narrative? Are we looking at poetry? Are we looking at prophecy? Well, some might read this and think we're looking at imperative command, but Paul makes it clear that really what he's giving us, yes, in a sense, it, it, it comes with authority, but this section really is more inspired pastoral counsel that is sensitive and wise. And we must make a careful distinction between inspired counsel and objective commands. A blanket command, such as, do not put away your wife, for instance, which we find in chapter 7, it applies objectively in all situations. Divorce is divorce. And God says, don't do it. <laughs> but counsel, while being entirely true, will apply differently depending on an individual's situation and place in life. So all of the things that Paul says in this text are infallible. They are inspired and they are, in true, they are true. But some of them may apply to one person differently than they do to another. And I want to point that out to you because we'll read some things at the end of chapter 7. And if we took it to mean a blanket command, it would be very confusing to us. It would almost seem as if Paul was contradicting himself. But he's not doing that. He's giving counsel. And sometimes you can give counsel to someone... And your counsel is perfectly accurate. It just doesn't apply to that person. So we need to keep that in mind. So with that said, let's get into this counsel. The first thing that we need to consider, the present distress. He says in verse 26, I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. Say that it is good for a man so to be. Well, the phrase, so to be means for a man who is single to remain single. He's talking to virgins. And if you are a virgin, Paul says, it's good for you to be that way. There's nothing wrong with you being a single virgin in the church. And we know that this is counsel because the Bible nowhere issues a blanket command that all single men must remain single perpetually. I should have heard at least two amens from that from Bryce and Lucas. Amen? You're not commanded to remain perpetually single, but there's nothing wrong with your singleness. That's what Paul's saying. Rather, this counsel is pertaining to a specific situation, and that situation is our first consideration. What's the context of this counsel? The context of this counsel is the present distress. Because of this present distress, if you're a single virgin, it's good for you to remain single. Well, that begs the question, what is this present distress that Paul is speaking of? And the most theologically accurate answer to that question is, we don't know. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us what the present distress is. We can look at the history of the time, and there's a number of plausible options as to what the present distress could have been. We do know that it was something in the Corinthians' day because it said it was a present distress. But the Bible doesn't tell us what this specific distress is. Some, may, uh, some think it, that may be a particular situation in the Corinthian church, just like we have particular economic collapses that affect the church or different... You know, we, had, we just went through a period of, of what? Of, of global, quote-unquote, pandemic. That's what they called it anyways. That had serious effects upon churches everywhere. But the most common 
view, and it's the one that I particularly would lean towards, is that the present distress refers to the brewing Roman persecution against the church. Persecution was just beginning at the time of this letter, but soon would be ushered in one of the fiercest periods of persecution in church history. And this persecution would last for centuries. It's a plausible interpretation because Paul in other letters to other churches will give them advice and counsel and admonition for coming persecution. And what Paul is saying to single virgins in a church that is about to enter into persecution, that it is much harder to undergo persecution as a family than it would be as a single person. When the Roman government came down hard on the church, single Christians were able to easily flee. They were able to leave the the city and go hide out. They only had to worry about themselves. They only had to worry about their few belongings. Losing a home, losing employment would not have been a big deal for them. They could find other ways to provide for themselves. But it would have been much harder for a Christian with a wife and with children to avoid the swelling tide of persecution. Some of them had no choice but to remain in Corinth and face that persecution as a family. A single Christian would have an easier time laying down his life as a martyr for Jesus Christ. It is easier to go off to the stake and to, to give your body to be burned when you, you don't have a wife and a child to leave behind. But a husband who's responsible for providing for his family would have no choice but to think about who would care for my family if the government hauled me off and executed me for my faith. Now by God's restraining grace, we do not live in a time of oppression anywhere close to what the Corinthians would have to face shortly after this letter. But we must still consider the present distresses we do have as we think about entering into marriage, as we consider singleness. We must think about the fact that our society is becoming more and more hostile towards biblical Christianity. If you are going to be a faithful follower of the Word of God, your faith will cost you. I would even go so far as to say that if you have never lost anything because of your Christianity, then your Christianity may not be all that authentic. Jesus says that we must take up our cross and follow Him. That means losing things. For some, it even means losing our life. What what, what did Jesus lose when He took up His cross? He lost His life on the cross. And what did He gain? (laughs) Eternal riches. Splendors in heaven. A host of saints that would worship Him forever. But temporally, temporally, taking up your cross will cost you. Your Christianity may cost you a friendship. Your Christianity may cost you a relationship with a family member. Your Christianity may cost you a job opportunity. For some of you, I know I'm talking to people that your Christianity has costed you these things. Your Christianity will certainly cost you popularity in the world. As a single Christian, these losses are not as great of a concern as they would be if you had a family. If you're single, now is the time for your faith to be on fire for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now is the time for you to be a dynamic and powerful Christian witness. Now is the time for zeal to serve Christ. Now is the time to be radically sold out to Jesus. You don't have the responsibilities of a husband or a wife or a father or a mother. You you probably don't have a demanding career right now. You have more free time than anyone else in the church. You have more time to devote to the things of God. You are as free right now, by the way, as you will ever be. That means you don't have many excuses. You should be reading more Bible than anyone. You should be praying more than anyone. You should be here anytime the doors are open. When there's a need in the church, you should be eager to meet it. When there's work to be done, you should be the first to volunteer. 
Your testimony before the world should be so clear. There should be no mistake about whether or not you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You ought to be proclaiming Christ with great boldness. You don't have to worry about how your fiery zeal will affect your wife and your children. You don't have to worry, as, as say, a pastor does, about how his public stance may come back to be a thing that the, the enemy and unbelievers will use to attack his wife and attack his children. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have that yet. You are free to serve and follow Jesus. Whatever he bids you to do, do it. Do it now, because there's coming a time in your life in which you will have to think about that. And when we have times of public evangelism, and we go out into the community and we preach the gospel, I have to think about, will an unbeliever see me standing boldly for Christ and use that as a, as a way to attack even my family? Again, Paul is not commanding you to remain single. You, you have the freedom to marry, but before you do, you must consider the freedom you have while single in light of these present distresses. So he says in verse 27, Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. And now, when he says, Art thou bound unto a wife? There's, there's also two ways that you can take this. Some say, If you're already married, don't seek to be not married. And then they'll say, art thou loose from a wife? If you were married and you're not anymore, don't seek to be married again. But perhaps a more plausible interpretation of verse 27, when he talks about being bound unto a wife, we understand that the betrothal period of that day was a whole lot more serious than it is now. I think he's giving counsel to single virgins. Listen, if, if you are already engaged to be married, you don't necessarily have to break that off. But if you're not... You don't have to rush to find a spouse. But whatever you do, don't make the decision without considering the present distresses of life and what that will look like for you as a married man or a married woman compared to a single man or a single woman. Whatever spouse the Lord leads you to marry, make sure that it is one that will encourage your service to Christ, not hinder it. The first consideration that we must make is the consideration of the present distress. But secondly, we must consider the pressing troubles. The pressing troubles in verse 28. Paul says, but and if thou marry... So again, that's why I think verse 27 really could be speaking to a virgin who is betrothed. Because then he says in verse 28, but if you do get married, right? But if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. Thou hast not sinned. You're not... You're not sinning by getting married. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, here's the consideration. Such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. You're not sinning by getting married, but if you don't consider these things, you will have trouble in the flesh. Even if you do consider these things, you will have trouble in the flesh. And Paul is saying, as much as I can, I want to spare you from that trouble. That's why I'm writing to you. Paul says here that marriage is not sinful, but it is the joining of two sinners. That's what marriage is. And anytime you put two sinners under the same roof, there will be pressing troubles. Now there are, there are some people, usually people that are single and bitter about it, or people that are on their third or fourth failed marriage who will be the first to tell you, oh, don't get married, all of these troubles, all of the things you'll lose, you know, life only goes downhill from there, you get married, your life is over. I'll be honest with you, I don't have much time for those people because they are desecrating something that God calls a gift and a blessing. So as I, so as I go through this this verse on the pressing troubles, I don't want you to get the idea from me that I am in any way saying that these troubles are so great that it should dissuade you from thinking about marriage. And that's not what Paul is doing. Paul would be the first to tell you that when a godly man marries a godly woman, their marriage will be one of the biggest blessings that either of them will ever experience. But Paul, because he's faithful to present the whole counsel of God, Paul also speaks of the realities of marriage. 
Paul knows that even the most blessed marriages are not all sunshine and rainbows. Like any good thing, to experience the true joys of marriage, you must be willing to dedicate yourself and invest hard work into that relationship. You must realize that though the joys of marriage far outweigh them, there are pressing troubles in marriage that you must consider. Financial struggles, personality clashes, in-law disputes, hurt feelings, miscommunications, parenting squabbles. See, if you're single, you're a lone ranger. If you're single, you make your own decisions. But once you enter into marriage, now there are two personalities. Now there are two wills. Now there are two outlooks. There are two viewpoints. There are two sets of emotions. And both must be taken into consideration. When you are single, you live for yourself. When you're single, you you make your own decisions. You do what you want to do when you want to do it. But once you're married, you are called by God to live sacrificially on behalf of your spouse. You don't belong to yourself anymore. And if you've lived for yourself for 20, 25, 30 years, it takes time to learn how to live sacrificially. It takes time to break habits. It takes time to become accepting and patient with someone else who sees things differently than you do. This is why premarital counseling is absolutely crucial. It's crucial. Because your passions and your emotions will deceive you into thinking that you're somehow the exception to the rule. Other people may have problems in their marriages, but not us. We really love each other. Listen to me. Don't be so naive as to think that you are somehow the grand exception to this rule here. The problems in a young marriage are typically not due to a lack of love, but simply because you don't know what you don't know. And you oftentimes don't know it until someone else outside of that relationship, emotionally detached from it, that does know, is able to sit you down and say, have you considered this? And you'll say, no, we haven't, but that's something we need to talk about before we commit our lives to each other. This is also why marriage counseling is so important. Marriage counseling is not just for the couples whose marriage is in shambles because of infidelity and now they're on the brink of divorce. I mean, if that's you, yeah, please, go seek some counsel. But that's an extreme scenario. Don't be ashamed of seeking wise advice and counsel. Husbands, Yes, you are the head of your household. Yes, you are the leader in the marriage. But don't think that God is calling you to bear up all of that pressure on your own. You have a church for a reason. You have a pastor for a reason. You have brothers in Christ for a reason. All marriages will have these pressing troubles. No couple is exempt. And there's nothing wrong with you for seeking counsel when you experience these troubles. And as a pastor, I can tell you that it is much better to seek counsel early on. As soon as these troubles are detected, while they are relatively small, than it is to be puffed up in pride and to wait and to put off seeking help until these light troubles become major issues. If you love your pastor, don't do that to him. Don't keep something bottled up and and hidden from everyone until it just blows up and then you need an emergency help. (laughs) So Paul wants the single believers in the Corinthian church to consider the reality of marriage before rushing into it. Paul's just, just keeping it real in this text. That's what he's doing. Marriage requires a dying to self. 
You must give yourself fully and completely without reservation to the spouse that God calls you to marry and you must be willing to endure pressing troubles for the glory of God and the perseverance of your marriage. Pressing troubles. Have you considered them? Have you considered practically? Have you ever, have you ever thought about what things do I do in my life that I would have to do differently if I were married? What are some things that I can't stand when other people do them. And am I thinking about marrying someone that does that? You know, ladies and gentlemen, the, the little things that your, 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 your fiancé does or your girlfriend or your boyfriend does before, the little things that kind of bother you when you get married and you're around them all the time, they're going to really bother you. So you need to be considering these things. You need to be praying, Lord, give me grace to be more patient, to be more accepting, to be more long-suffering, to be more humble, to consider others before myself. How do you, how do you prepare for this? Well, if you are having a problem living sacrificially for a spouse or the idea of living sacrificially for a spouse gives you trouble, you need to really start living sacrificially for Jesus Christ. Even now, as a single person, you still don't really live unto yourself because you belong to Him. So you need to consider the pressing troubles. And then thirdly, you need to consider the passing opportunities. The passing opportunities. Look at verse 29. Paul says, But this I say, brethren, the time is short. The time is short. The time was short 2,000 years ago when Paul first wrote this epistle, and time is still short today. The Apostle James says, James 4, verses 13 and 14, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. You who say, well, I'm single now. I, 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 I'm free to, to do whatever I want, to shrug responsibility, to make all of my own decisions and choices. I have all of this time. Once I, once I get on the other side of that, and then, then I'll think about getting married. Then I'll think about settling down. What is your life? How do you know that you'll ever make it to that place that you keep talking about? Just do it now. So Paul says, it remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. What, what is he doing in verses 29 through 31? He's using figurative language to encourage urgency in the Christian life in light of the shortness of time. Not an urgency to get married, but an urgency to serve the Lord. We should be urgent about serving the Lord. Pastors should enter into the pulpit with the urgency of, I may never preach again. I may never stand before people with a, a Bible in front of me declaring the Word of God. I, and that should be a reality when you get in the pulpit. And if it is, you won't think, well, it's okay if I preach a dud today. Don't really study for it because I'll, I'll do better next Sunday. I might not have next Sunday. You can't say, well, yeah, I know I need to grow up. I know I need to take some responsibilities. I know I need to prepare myself, but... I'm going to take the summer off. This fall, come September, I'm really going to start growing up. I might not make it to this fall. So Paul says, It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. And we must understand that this is figurative. Paul would never literally teach the neglect of one spouse. He would never say, Christian husband, you need to, to live like you don't even have a wife. What, what is he doing? He's warning that if we don't understand the place of marriage in the context of a life lived for the glory of God, we can very easily make an idol even out of our own marriage. And it, it, it surprises me that I would even say this, but if I'm going to be faithful to the text, I think that's what Paul is saying. It is possible for the pendulum to swing so far in the other direction that your marriage can consume you to the point that it hinders your service. 
And that, that makes plausible sense because we certainly know that single people can be so consumed with entering into a marriage that it hinders their service. It is possible to swing the pendulum too far in the direction of family that you forget that the Lord calls you to be His first and foremost. And if you are married, you ought to ask yourself, where is the pendulum in your life? Again, that's why this is counsel, because this might apply to one person differently than to another. Do you have a biblical balance between God and family Work and everything else. Some of you may need to make alterations in how you devote your time so that you can increase greater faithfulness in all areas of your life. Some of you, this might mean spending more time with with family and with family obligations. Some of you, it might mean considering the things of God at a little higher degree. However the shoe fits, apply that and wear it in your life. This is pastoral counsel because this counsel is 100% truthful but it may apply differently depending on where you're at in life. Now one of the characteristics though of of a wise, mature believer is that they will have a healthy balance of the things that God has called them to do. They don't neglect their families for the sake of the church and they don't neglect the church for the sake of their families. The most godly men I've had the privilege of knowing, the godly men in this church, are not only faithful churchmen, but they're also faithful husbands, faithful fathers. Well, how is this balance to be found? Well, let me give you some pastoral counsel of my own. I believe that the way to find this balance without sacrificing faithfulness in any area is not to make such a rigid distinction between family time and family obligations and church time and church obligations. Now that is hard if you're in a mixed marriage or you're married to an unbeliever, but if you're in a Christian marriage, I would encourage you, serve the church with your family. And devote yourself to your family in the context of the church. Parents, there's nothing better for your children to see than their father and their mother assembling with the saints and worshiping Jesus Christ. When when your children grow up, what will they most remember about their childhood? Will they remember that dad never missed a little league game? Dad was always on the sidelines at the, at the ball field. He was cheering me on every time I was up at bat. Or will they remember? Dad never missed Sunday morning. Our family was there. We sang the hymns. We listened to the preaching. We bowed our heads when we prayed. Now, is it sinful to go to a Little League game? Absolutely not. But there's a very, very small percentage that your child will ever be a professional baseball player, but there is a 100% chance that they'll stand before Jesus someday. Corporate worship is more important than movie night. Prayer meetings are more important than baseball games. So Paul says here that if your family begins to hinder your service to the Lord, you may need to remember the urgency that you served Christ when you were single. And and you need to reincorporate that into your present marriage. That's really what the church is to be. Families serving the Lord together. A man can only go so far in the ministry as his wife comes with him. And And a woman can only go so far in the church as her husband goes with her. And is even before her in that sense of biblical headship. And if you are single and you are considering marriage, you need to realize that time is short. Time is short. A lot of the reasons why we as Christians don't get very far in the faith is because we invest so much time into things that God has never asked us to do. Marry a spouse that is equally devoted to serving Christ and fight to maintain your mutual determination to serve God in your marriage. Just as husbands must sacrifice for their wives and wives must sacrifice for their husbands, there are things that married couples must sacrifice together if their marriage 
is going to be dedicated to the glory of God. And it is very tempting to look around at other married couples that do things the worldly way and to see the possessions that they amass for themselves, the different involvements that they engage in because they don't commit themselves to the Lord. They don't live for the glory of Christ. They, they live for the glory of themselves. And if you're going to commit yourself to Christ, it may mean not having some of the things that the world will tell you you need, but brothers and sisters, this is all you need. This is what you need. Paul continues this figurative language to express the shortness of time, the urgency that it requires. He says, verse 30, And they that weep as though they wept not. This almost echoes the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a time for weeping. There is indeed a time for weeping. But don't let your weeping paralyze you and keep you from following after God. Dry up your tears and get back in the front lines. And then he says, And they that rejoice as though they rejoice not. Rejoicing is is good. Rejoicing is glorious. But sometimes the victories that we experience, the rejoicing that that we have will give us this false sense of arrival. And we'll become complacent. We'll become satisfied with where we are in an an unbiblical way of being satisfied. And we'll keep, we'll we'll stop pushing forward. We'll get to a certain point and we'll we'll sit down and, and we'll just give up because we think we've gotten as far as we'll go. You see it in ministries. You see a young man who enters the ministry and his gifts and his skills, they're improving and they're improving and he he enters the pastorate and he preaches and he's getting better and he's getting better and he's getting more seasoned and then he reaches a point where he just caps himself. And after he turns 40, that's as good as he's ever going to preach and he just preaches that good for the rest of his life. Because he rejoiced in what he had attained. He, He reached a level of theological knowledge. He reached a level of exegetical ability, and he says, I'm good. And you should be content with where the Lord has you, but I don't want any of us to ever be content with the level of our devotion to Christ, our our love for Him, our knowledge of Him. We should always desire, whether you've been in the faith three minutes, three years, 30 years, we should always desire to be more passionately in love with Jesus Christ and to be growing in the things of God. Praise God for every blessing along the way, but keep serving Him. Those that rejoice as though they rejoice not. Then he says, and those that buy as though they possessed not. (laughs) Buying and selling are necessary aspects of life. You must go to the store and buy things from time to time. But don't become so entangled in material possessions that your goal becomes worldly treasure and not Christ. It is possible to be too rich to be profitable in the kingdom. You have a new car, you have a new house, you have a new boat, and then you have to go buy a new vacation home so you have a place to keep your new boat. Pretty soon you find yourself spending all of your time playing with toys that profit you nothing. Be careful how you spend your recreational time whether it's with a controller in your hand or a fishing rod in your hand. Be careful. And if it doesn't bring glory to God ultimately, then it doesn't belong in our life. Why? Because time is too short to be wasted on things of no heavenly reward. Let me give you another practical counsel for recreational time. How do you take something recreational that you you struggle to see, okay, how does this glorify God, me doing this? Well, do it with other believers. Engage in it with other Christians. And then suddenly it's no longer about this recreational time anymore. Now it's about the bonds that we're building with one another. Paul says, And they that use this world as not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passeth away. We must use this world. We need physical things. We need food and clothing and drink and place to sleep at night. We need money. I, I, 
I would never suggest anyone taking a vow of poverty by any means. We even need recreational activities that help us to reset and recharge. We need to rest. We need these things. We must use this world. We can't be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. We also must not be too earthly minded that we're no heavenly good. We must realize that this world is passing away. The the fashion of this world passeth away. Don't pour your life into things that will ultimately perish with you. Only two eternal things will come out of this world, the word of God and the souls of men. Well, what does this have to do with singleness, Paul? Have you gone down another rabbit trail? Not really. If you think about what he's saying here, this has to do with exactly what he's talking about. Because we must realize, young people, you must realize that even marriage will pass away. Marriage is not eternal. In heaven, there is no marriage. There is no being married or being given in marriage. Therefore, listen, if you haven't gotten anything, get this and we'll be done. Marry someone who will prepare you for eternity. You must build a marriage that has a higher goal than just earthly happiness. When you consider marriage, don't just think about, well, by the time we're 60, these are all the things we want to have. Think about when we get to heaven, these are the treasures that we want to have that we achieved in our marriage on earth. We must build marriages that add to our heavenly treasures. We must build marriages that allow us to glorify Christ in ways that we couldn't do on our own. You can't glorify Christ with children unless you get married. Paul is not against marriage in this text. He is simply honest. Now these are just the first three considerations and we'll look at the remainder of them next week. But if you find yourself single, unmarried, you're not married, okay? I know the the cultural context has all of these terms taken and whatever else. If you're not married, you're single. If you find yourself single, understand that God has allotted this time for you. Your singleness is not a curse. Your singleness is a gift. And it is a time to think and a time to prepare and a time to consider the realities of the Christian life. It is not a time to be wasted on silly and childish activities. It's a time to serve the Lord with fervency and urgency until He makes it clear that He is calling you to marriage. Don't enter your marriage with regrets because you wasted your singleness. Don't enter into your marriage And have a trouble come up in your marriage and think to yourself, well, if I would have paid more attention to this before we got married, maybe I wouldn't have made this mistake that I just made. And whether you're single or married, if you're not living for the Lord Jesus Christ, I plead with you, stop wasting your life. You who call yourself a Christian, do you see the kind of radical life that God is calling you to live here in this text? It is a life that you can't live apart from His grace. Jesus is not calling you to do something that he didn't emulate. The one who calls you to take up your cross first took up his. For 33 years, Jesus lived a life radically devoted to doing the will of God. And he died on that cross, the one that he carried. And he redeemed you so that you too can enter into the service of our Lord. That's why he he died. Not so that you could go to heaven someday, but so that you could experience heaven along your way there. And in singleness or in marriage, there's no greater joy than sold-out service and passionate love for Jesus Christ. These are the three considerations this week. Next week, we'll look at the remainder of these considerations. May the Lord help us. May the Lord give us grace to apply this to our lives and may He build strong, faithful marriages in this church and in every church. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us. We praise you for the word of God and all of the wisdom and truth that we find in it. Lord, we love you and we magnify you. We worship you. We bow before you today.
Give us the grace to apply what you've written to our own hearts and lives. May it transform our marriages, transform our singleness. And may we serve you with fervor and intention. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.